Hello everyone, this is Fluke Excelix. We will be starting our broadcast in just a minute. This is a little bit of a warm-up time, so we'll go back on pause until the rest of our attendees have joined. Hello everyone and thanks for joining. We're waiting just 30 more seconds for the rest of our audience to arrive. All right, this is Leah Freeberg from Fluke Excelix. Thanks very much for joining us today for this best practices webinar. You probably know Fluke as a test tool provider and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite reliability tools from infrared cameras to vibration meters. But you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Excelix. Our goal is to better connect asset management data into existing asset management systems. And it all turns around best practices and condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies. And that's where you feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. Before the presentation starts, we have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so the phone lines will be muted to minimize background noise. We will save time after the presentation for your questions. If questions come up during the presentation, you are welcome to use the questions feature and go to webinar to submit your comments as we go. So take a minute now to find the questions tool in the dashboard. At the end of our talk, I will share as many of your questions as time allows with our presenter. And if we have unanswered questions at the end, we'll follow up later with written answers. If you'd like to receive the slides from today's presentation, please let us know during the survey that will appear at the end of today's session. A recording of the webinar will be available on the Excelux.com website within a day or two. All right, that's it for housekeeping. Now for the main event. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Oliver Sturck, Chief Technical Officer for Fluke Reliability. Oliver will be giving a 2020 check-in. Where are we on the road to the future of manufacturing? Oliver specializes in creating customer-centric solutions in IoT, analytics, machine learning, real-time systems, secure web architectures, and mobile. Prior to joining Fluke in 2017, Oliver served as CTO at Chad, leading a global team responsible for developing enterprise software that enabled more efficient maintenance through the IoT. He also previously served as the VP of Mobile Solutions at OpenText and Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at WeCom. I've personally had the pleasure of working with Oliver and I'm genuinely delighted to be discussing the future of manufacturing technology with him today. So good morning, Oliver. Thanks so much for joining us. Would you mind telling us a bit about Fluke Reliability? Yeah, good morning, Leah. Thank you for the introduction. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a, a lot of 
technical words in that description, but I think the other relevant piece is that I've been in around the, the manufacturing space, particularly in around enterprise asset management for the last um, seven years. So Shad was a, a German company that specialized in connecting machine data from SCADA systems and building management systems to enterprise asset management systems. Uh, so we did a lot of work with with IBM in that space and and all of the well-known manufacturers of PLCs and SCADA systems. Mm -hmm. And so the, then the real drive there was to get people um, to the point where they could understand how their assets were performing so that they could translate that into maintenance actions. And that was, um, you know, I think we, we were fairly unique in, in trying to bridge those systems. And that's something we're continuing here at Fluke. And Fluke, the, the, the reliability mission at Fluke is about keeping uh, facilities and production lines running 24-7 um, um, by improving people's understanding of what could go wrong. And so we can direct our maintenance activities and avoid failure. So we're really moving Fluke from a company that specializes in giving people data points uh, to the point where we can give people answers to much more complex questions like how is my motor running and uh, and what do I need to do in order to keep it running. And is it still the case that you are working on bridge technologies? So not just the Fluke data points as you say, but a larger integrated framework? Absolutely. So Shad, where I was previously, was acquired by Fluke in 2017. That was the point at which I joined team and so we're, we're continuing that and so we're Excelix is a very open ecosystem it's not just about flute data it's about any kind of data that we can bring in to to help our understanding of asset performance okay I have a feeling we'll get more into that as we go so I won't linger on it too much at this point so today we're going to do a little bit of reflection on 2019 uh, because it's been a different kind of year than I think the pundits thought at the beginning of 2018. So what happened, what's holding us back? And then, because it's December, we'll look at what we think is going to happen next. And, you know, I think there's always an inclination for uh, being a little worried as well as being excited. So we'll kind of point, uh, uh, poke at that a little bit and see what we think. But we'll get started. First, with a little bit of retrospect, um, and try to pull up some of the biggest themes that um, that we've seen. But um, we don't want to have this happen just from our perspective. We'd like to have everyone on the line chime in. So <clears throat> you should, at this point, see a poll up in front of you. And I'd like you to take a moment, do some reading, and click all of them that apply. Which of these themes were true for your work, your profession, your facilities? Were more data collecting devices deployed? Did you see more integration in your maintenance systems? Did reliability work become more valued? Was it still hard to fill job openings? And did you make as much progress as hoped in digitalization or is it still kind of lagging? So thank you for taking the time because I, I think this will be a good sort of level set checkpoint for us to see what you all think. And I see there's still some active voting happening. One more second. I know there's a lot of reading in this one. We're going to be doing more of a Q&A style this webinar because so much of this is retrospective and, and forecasting because, uh, you know, it's a big active marketplace. You want to see what you all think as well. All right. I'm going to close it down. We've got 72% of folks sharing. You should be able to see the results now. And it looks like you know, this is an interesting mix. So at the bottom, we have 55% say they did not make as much progress as they'd hoped in digitalization, and that it is still very hard to find qualified people, but that also reliability work is more valued. That's fantastic to hear, and that they did deploy more sensors, um, but we're still lagging on maintenance systems. Oliver, what do you think about these answers? 
Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, I think we see <clears throat> we see these themes, and um, you know, we've, uh, we're going to talk about a few of them. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm kind of not surprised that many people have said they didn't make as much progress as they hoped. And mm -hmm. you know, th uh -huh. this is one of the challenges: is it's uh, it's sometimes difficult to know where to get started. Um, that's something we think about a lot is how do you take the first step on that journey? Because this is a journey. It's not a, hmm. it's not a it, it, we use, use the term digital, but it's not a, a digital switch from um, one culture to another culture. It's a, it's going to take time and it's uh you need to take that first step on the journey before you can say that you're started. So I Indeed. think that's one of the challenges the industry faces. Indeed. But we did see some progress being made. Yes, I mean, certainly um, we, what we've observed from, from these kinds of surveys and, you know, talking to our customers is progress in a number of different areas. Um, do you want to go back to the slides? Sure. Let's hide this poll. And you should now see the slides back on screen if technology is in my favor. And uh, let's go on to what... Uh, what you've seen, Oliver, you and your team, um, because um, it's been an interesting year. So this is one of the first things that you mentioned to me, that you saw a shift from facilities just using sensors in a pilot mode to using sensors far more broadly. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah. So this is, I think, one of the the likely first steps on this journey is is to figure out how do we get more data from our assets and, and sensors are proving to be a valuable way of doing that. Um, but there's a lot of um, a lot of questions around you know exactly what do I measure and how do I measure it and is this going to be valuable? Is this going to deliver what I want? So we've seen you know we've been in the sensor business for a few years. Um, we've got a, a pretty broad range of sensors covering things like vibration, power quality thermal imaging and, and more um, simpler uh, sort of electrical current um, voltage and, and temperature and so on. Um, and what we've seen up until 2019 was customers trying this out sort of fairly tentatively to see whether that, that helps. I think people are nervous about whether they're going to get overloaded with alarms perhaps or whether getting them set up is going to be challenging in their environment um, or whether it's going to deliver value and we've we've seen quite a lot of companies break through that barrier in 2019, moving from deployments of 10 or 20 sensors up to hundreds and even thousands in some cases. Uh, particularly things like vibration, where you know vibration is is a it's a complex art. Understanding that is is difficult. Often relies on third parties. And I think whilst that will continue to be the case for um, diagnostics for the time being. Um, vibration sensors can give you a, a really good screening tool uh, to tell you where your problems are likely to arise. And we've seen customers, uh, as I say, deploy thousands of vibration sensors across complex facilities, particularly with lots of rotating equipment um, to, to help them understand that. So that's exciting. You know, we firmly believe that sensors are the future for many applications, not all, of course, there will always be some that require handheld tools, but I think sensors in many cases, particularly as the cost comes down, um, will uh, broaden the amount of data that we can get considerably just by making it easier and cheaper to, uh, to censor up assets that either weren't monitored in the past or were expensive to monitor because it required manual rounds being taken with handheld equipment. So that's a really positive theme. Uh, and I think one that will will accelerate much, much further in 2020. And for people to be deploying larger amounts of sensors, they must be getting value out of the data. They must be finding it indicative. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, we're going to talk about cultural shift in a second, and there are some fairly big cultural challenges with that. But um, we've focused a lot of time and effort and and talk to hundreds and hundreds of customers about how can we make this experience simpler so the time to value is really important and then we'll continue to do that you know i don't think we've finished but making it you know really quick to deploy a sensor connected up 
and tell the system what asset you're monitoring and see whether it's operating normally or whether you've got a problem, um, you know, can be done in a few minutes from mm -hmm. start to finish. And that's, uh, that's incredibly powerful. And, and this is one of the bigger cultural shifts that, that you're hinting at, right? Where, and this is in line with, with our poll results as well, where reliability is more valued in the plant, specifically connected reliability, where it's not, it's a mixture of the knowledge as well as the data. Is that, is that what you mean to convey here? Yeah, I th you know, one of, the, one of the themes we hear from everybody, and I think this has always been the case and always will be the case, is that um, maintenance operations are never overfunded. There's always pressure to do more with, with less resource. Um, so the beauty of connecting equipment directly is that you cut out a lot of time spent monitoring things manually. So, you know, and, and to some extent, this is not new. You know, we've had SCADA systems and, and PLCs and control systems in place for, you know, decades. Um, I think the dif difference we're seeing with sensors is that, um, firstly, we can, we can generate much higher volumes of data. So sensors are designed for monitoring as opposed to control. And um, typically, you don't pass gigabytes of data through your SCADA system. Whereas with sensors, we can monitor at very, very high fidelity. So particularly things like power and vibration, which need high frequency monitoring. Um, and, and being able to connect that to the internet uh, or to your corporate network and have that flow through to a system that can ultimately help you decide whether it's working or not is crucially important. So it's, a, it's a, an efficiency drive. Um, you know, I think the concepts of manually surveying equipment is well known. Um, but most organizations don't do it or don't do enough of it because it's expensive. So, so they, value, they value the efficiency gains of reliability, you know, the increased uptime and the more efficient use of resources, both capital and, and human. But um, technology has made it easier to use reliability more broadly. And the data that you're, you're getting um, also makes it easier to communicate that value. Correct, and um, you know, so that and that isn't just getting the data from the sensors; it's also transmitting that off to other systems that are, play a role in how we're managing our equipment. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, the, the, one of the things that surprised me when I first came into this industry all those years ago was the fact that we're typically managing assets with a control system and managing the same assets in other systems like a CMMS or an enterprise asset management system and yet these systems are not connected. Mm -hmm. So you know connectivity is about connecting the data and the systems but also to the people um, and making sure that we're delivering information in a timely way to the people who need to respond. Yeah because the reliability is a that's a profession. So are we saying also that the reliability professional is more valued than before? Yeah, again, I think reliability isn't particularly a new concept. Um, you know, reliability centered maintenance has, has been a, a philosophy for a long time. But I, I think we're seeing a big shift culturally towards reliability, enabled to some extent by our ability to gather data. Um, and so I think the, the role of the maintenance technician is changing somewhat towards a reliability profession. Ah. And again, um, you know, this, this is this is a, a long-term change rather than something that's happening overnight. Um, but that changes our, our thinking from, you know, from the, you know, the expert who just instinctively knew when something needed attention to systems that help us understand when things need attention. So then how do we fold in this gener this ongoing generational change, right? Because we have higher than ever percentages in the younger generations now. Right. And that's putting a lot of pressure on management, on communications, on practices in the plant. And it's putting a lot of uh, pressure on you as the technologist to deliver things that are easy to use across all the people in the plant. Right. Well, and, and I think above that, I think we've got differences in expectations between generations. Right. So we've got, um, you know, baby boomers who are now thinking about retirement, who are deeply expert in the equipment they manage. Um, and as I say, have this, what we refer to as tribal knowledge, perhaps it's not written down, 
Um, but you know, they they instinctively know how a machine is performing because they can listen to it or they can smell it or you know they don't you know many cases where they didn't even need tools in order to know that there was a problem. Whereas clearly, less experienced people coming into the industry don't have that kind of uh, expertise, and I think their expectation of technology is significantly higher than previous generations. You know, the the, the Facebook generation, where everything is delivered to your mobile phone, um, expects technology to support them better, and um, you know, we we need to respond to that. Um, we need to help them understand better their environment so they can get to the work they that only a human can do, which is you know the the fixing the wrench turning piece and keeping that machinery running. Um, so you know that 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 really is the kind of uh, change that we're trying to support is how do we capture information better? How do we distribute it better? How do we share it better? Um, how can we provide additional value around diagnostics and so on mm -hmm. um, to support those? people coming in who don't have 30 years background. Mm -hmm. And it feels like you, it, I mean, obviously it's not for us to have an opinion one or the other, whether it's good or bad. It, it is, it, right? It simply is mm. that uh, the generations and technology are changing, but it's certainly an interesting pressure point that um, technology is expected to perform, right? Yeah. Well, I, and I, you're right. I won't say whether it's good or bad, but I think it, it, it's positive in the sense that it's in line with creating further efficiencies right? And, and allowing us to focus on things that humans are really good at, the machines are not good at, and allowing the machines to do things that, um, you know, can be automated. And typically exactly. that's the lower value work. Um, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the capturing of information, for example, um, is, is not something that requires an expert, whereas fixing the piece of equipment is something that requires an expert. So I, th I think we've, we focus in efficiency in the right areas and allow to do the humans more of what they're good at. So let's dig a little bit more because the poll answers were in line with, with what uh, you and I think. You know, 55% feel they didn't make as much progress as they hoped in digitalization. Let's dig a little bit on, on what's holding us back and uh, what we can do to better support um, the maintenance systems that, that we want to have. So I am going to open up another poll for our audience and uh, I'm so intrigued to see how the, the answers come back this time. So if there was one thing that you wish your organization would do to better support reliability and maintenance and you had to click only one in this case, would it be to allow more time for proactive maintenance work? Would it be adding more ways to monitor machine health? Would it be focusing on getting the data into, more, into one place? Would it be more training? Or would it be management level support for liability? And obviously all these things are important and I know that we're playing devil's advocate with you. So just pick one. And um, as always, that'll be, I think, indicative in and of itself. Because a big part of this is always prioritization. I've got about half the votes in. I'm going to give it another 30 seconds or so. What one thing do you wish your organization would do to better support reliability maintenance? You guys are great. I really appreciate everyone giving us this feedback. It's much better than just Olga and I talking to ourselves, right? All right, we have 71% of the vote in. I'm going to share the results. Okay, so we have a, a sneak win here for a management level support for reliability. So still more true understanding, acknowledgement, walking the talk at the management level for the longer term strategic thinking required for reliability, the data gathering, the rest of it, but also a lot of support for more ways to monitor machine performance um, and uh, getting the data in one place, allowing more time for proactive maintenance. What do you think about these answers, Oliver? Um, again, I'm not, this is very much in line with, with what we've seen um, talking to our customers as well. Um, 
and it's a nice segue into what we're about to talk about, I think. So, I mean, management support for reliability is is tricky. Um, mm. So we, you know, one of the things we've identified that's holding us back is you know, there, there is still a break fix culture that exists. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, to some extent, that may be appropriate in some environments, but I think increasingly we all want to avoid that um, middle of the night breakdown if we can. And I think the challenge here is explaining how you're spending money in order to avoid failure and how you prove that. And that's quite right. challenging. And, and typically the people who are responsible for putting these solutions in place um, find it quite difficult to articulate that to management who are not mm -hmm. in tune with the challenge. So, you know, we, we have been exploring lots of ways of trying to demonstrate how you save money by proactively monitoring and proactively maintaining equipment before it breaks. Um, but it, but essentially the problem is if we didn't get the failure, there is no sort of magical break fix moment where there's a hero who swings in with a wrench and fix it. Um, or a metric, right? There, there's, the there's... Metrics are very hard, yeah, because ultimately yeah. the result is nothing happened. Um, and, that, and that's quite difficult to get excited about, but it is incredibly important. So I think there is a, a cultural shift that, and, and you need top-down management support for reliability. There's no question about that. And mm -hmm. ultimately, these are more strategic decisions to implement reliability solutions than were typically the case if you were just buying a multimeter, um, which wasn't remotely strategic. You just It was just a tool you needed to do the job. Um, so we're certainly seeing that and we certainly need to continue to educate uh, the, the man higher levels of management into why this is a better way of behaving than simply waiting for your equipment to fail. Well, let's talk a bit more then about uh, the break fix maintenance culture since um, we've already already keyed into it now that um, with downtime being such a big part of the maintenance model and unplanned as, as well as planned um, and it's it's a change on the management level to change how they measure and the goals that they set and the degree of you know all team buy-in to the goal but it's also a change on at the other levels of the organization isn't it yeah well absolutely and um i think the way in which capital is being deployed is is different um and i think it's it's you know everybody wants to be able to measure the results of the money they're investing and that, that's difficult as i say if you're avoiding any kind of failure um ultimately it's it's difficult to show that you're or it's difficult to quantify how your activity is is factored in to that. Mm -hmm. As a technologist, what can you do to assist in that? Well, we we've been building dashboards um, that actually, in real time, compare the differences between um, the cost of deploying sensors to gather information and the cost of manually deploying that, for example. Ah, mm -hmm. and you know, when we come on and we'll talk a little bit about the artificial intelligence aspect of this, um, you know, you can, you can begin to compare previous year's performance with current year's performance. So you can start to demonstrate the change in downtime cost, for example. Um, so, you know, it, by comparing patterns that occurred in the past and failures that occurred in the past that are no longer occurring, you can actually demonstrate value but it's not trivial um for sure and i think customers uh, our customers have told us they would appreciate any help we can provide on that all right fair enough then um how about this next one where you have a hypothesis that we don't yet have enough meaningful data even though we're surrounded by data it feels like you're saying that we don't quite have the right kind of data? Um, I think it's true to say that we, we don't typically have enough. Um, I, I'm not sure it's true to say that we don't have the right kind. I think it's possible now to get pretty much any kind of data uh, through through sensors. I mean, we, we have um, had a strong focus on vibration and we recently acquired a, a a leading vibration company called Proof Technic, which is now part of Fluke Reliability, who have a 
huge range of very sophisticated vibration monitoring hardware and software. And um, it, I think, you know, it, it, the, those sensors are available um, and we are looking at lots of other different types of sensors like oil and ultrasonic and acoustic imaging and thermal imaging um, and how we can improve those. So I, it, I think it's quantity rather than quality of data the CSU and I, I think you know this goes back to the sense theme that people are uh, still questioning what they should censor up how they should measure things in order to get the right results um, so there's a lot of education that can be provided there and guidance um, and, and I think you know we, we we've also realized that we need to be much more proactive in providing assistance so we we're building up our services capabilities in order to advise people on how best uh, to deploy sensors and get value out of them. There are there are differences though out in the field. It's not as though everybody is surrounded with too much data, right? I mean, there are some folks who haven't even started. That's certainly true. Um, and I, I think that, um, yeah, there are organizations that have, have very little data. Um, but, but the sensors are providing a, a nice way to get that started um, without huge investments. I mean, I think in in the days where the only source of data was either to try and get it out of your control systems, uh, you know, if you didn't have a control system, that was a major, major investment. Um, or you, you used handheld tools, which was expensive to operate because it involved people. Um, so I, th I think sensors have substantially lowered the barrier. To, to monitoring pretty much anything that you, you need to monitor. Now, there are still challenges around how easy it is to deploy those, you know, getting access to corporate Wi-Fi environments and so on has, has slowed us down a little bit, but we're, you know, working hard on overcoming those challenges. Um, and again, I think in a, a little while, we're gonna talk about some of the things that are coming that are gonna help us do that and make mm -hmm. that easier. So as you say, um, when you were talking about different types of sensors, we have a better understanding of what sensors can do for us. We have a better understanding of what um, what indicator points to measure, um, at what kinds of data, and how to utilize that data. So it is it has been holding us back, but it sounds like you feel we're just about over the hump and we're going to start moving forward. I think we're positioned very well yes i mean the, i think probably the biggest single point is that nobody really wants data per se they want answers to questions <laughs> right. so i mean right. there are also customers who have way too much data and don't know what to do with it um you uh -huh. know, there are people who've spent a lot of money building up big historians full of data and when you ask uh, very often what do you do with that data the answer is nothing at all and so, you know, the, the, the interesting bit really is what we're working on now, which is how do we um, apply analytics to that data to say, well, what this means is X. Uh, you've got a bearing problem or you've got a, a misalignment problem on this motor. Um, and we're pretty close to that point. Um, and that, I think, is where it becomes really interesting, because I think you can very easily go from having not enough data to having too much in a pretty short space of time. So you really need to make sure that you're applying the relevant intelligence to that uh, so that you can turn that into actions. And that's that's really the key to what we're trying to do here. You know, the, the information is great. That allows you to change your thinking about the way your scheduling maintenance work, because if you know you've got a critical asset that's like to fail in the next week, um, that changes your thinking about how you're running your operation. Um, but ultimately, what we want to do is to then make it as easy as possible to turn that into the remedy. Um, meaning, you know, you click a button and create a work order. Right. But what about this problem? Proprietary data silos, because as we talked about in the very beginning, it's not all integrated. Um, you've got massive legacy systems that live historian with all that data, and you've got people running around with thermal imagers, and it's not all in the same place. You may still have spreadsheets of data being kept manually, um, you know, it's much more digital than it used to be, but it's still isolated. So that's holding us back. And what are we going to do about it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think this is one of the the interesting things about what the software can achieve is connecting these various systems. 
So, you know, as I said in the introduction, my previous business focused on connecting SCADA systems and PLCs, um, building management systems into other kinds of enterprise systems that are typically found in the environment. So trying to, you know, and we can, we can get good performance data and machine data from those databases. Um, certainly there's a lot of alarms that are, are useful. There may be other forms of machine data in there that we can use and process data in there all of which can form parts of these uh, these algorithms that then tell us what to do next, if you like, or mm -hmm. advice on what, what the problem might be. Um, so I, I th there, there are a lot of connectivity solutions that can bring these pieces of data together. So I think and that's something to consider as well as sensors. You know, there not, may not be value in censoring up something if you already have that information in your, in your SCADA system. Um, and we can connect that data into Excelix. We can run exactly the same sets of algorithms in order to uh, come up with those conclusions. Okay. Um, do you, this is obviously not a, an easy problem to solve. Um, do you want to give us any kind of a time frame, or just that this is something that's continuously in motion? Well, this is something we can do today. Uh, I think, um, you know, the, what we've tried to do is make this out of the box. I mean, there's, there've been hundreds of projects where people have, have paid people to come in and connect databases. What we're trying to do is make it a, into a, a product that works. So we can connect uh -huh. to hundreds of different protocols, read that data, and then turn that into something that could be centralized um, in Excelix. Mm -hmm. and, and filtered and trustworthy and high enough quality data and so that it is actually believable and delivering the right information. Yep. I mean, the the quality aspect is typically, yeah, there's a, there's a usually a bit of cleanup that's involved. I think most mm -hmm. people would say that their data isn't as clean as they'd like it to be. Right. Um, that's something that the tool supports, yeah. Okay. So moving on then, um, let's talk about how next year looks. Um, because I think sometimes we change is very incremental and it takes hindsight to realize that something has happened and other times it's it's quite dramatic and you know your whole system changes or something something new happens so again let's let's go to the polls as it were and this time i won't keep the poll up um afterward i promise um but uh let's take a look at what our our audience thinks about um what we anticipate in in 2020 uh which of these possibilities do we think will will actually happen or start to happen that more machines will be connected that as we say the data volumes will, will mushroom um this is an interesting one will fewer people be working the plant floor um and you can take that any way you want skill shortage what have you um will reactive break fixed maintenance decline and will there be better support for in situ asset diagnostics? So more diagnostics capable as things are happening on the plant floor. So take a minute and vote. Uh, I might need to reopen the poll one moment. I may have fast clicked my way too many times through this. That's the case, and I owe the team an apology. I may not be able to trigger that poll at this point. Let's try it one more time. Nope, I think I inadvertently closed the poll. My apologies. So let's give our assessment here um, on what we think. Um, obviously, I know in advance some of Oliver's answers. So I'm going to progress. I'm going to close this. Um, and move on to the next slide with my apologies. So to get some of your forecasting here on what you think is going to happen in 2020. 
Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think I, I talked about this, this intelligence which helps us turn data into meaningful information and that's really where we're, we're investing significantly. So today we provide user set alarms so we can discover when something looks like it's operating out of bounds which is really the simplest possible type of alert that you can get and that works well in some cases but um, again at scale that's challenging so if you need to set alarms on thousands of sensors you know that's going to be fairly painful when we've, we've made it simpler in the sense that you can apply iso standard um, limits on alarms for various types of equipment <clears throat> um, which is helpful but um, what we're really trying to do is to make this more intelligent. So, you know, either it's it's easier to get started or it's giving you a much greater level of insight into what's going on. So where we go next is what we call smart alarms, which are alarms that monitor equipment performance and then set alarms uh, based on a, an observed understanding of what is normal. Um, so, you know, w within a few days of monitoring a piece of equipment, a sensor can understand what normal looks like and then it can tell you when something abnormal happens. Um, so that's the first level. Then the second level is to differentiate between some transient uh, non-normal operation, which could actually be an external factor. So, you know, particularly with something like vibration, it's quite easy for an external vibration to trigger a sensor. Um, so we need to be able to differentiate between that and a true anomaly. So that's our next level is saying there is actually something wrong with this asset. Um, and you, you do that by, you know, ignoring transients and a better understanding of what a pattern is telling us. The level beyond that is true diagnostics. So where we can detect an anomaly and say it is this specific type of problem that we're, we're seeing here. So, you know, this is specifically early stage bearing wear or this is a looseness uh, characteristic. And we're, we're actually, we're pretty close to being able to do that um, reliably for some assets and we're, we're focusing very much on motors um, because our customers tell us that they're one of the more challenging classes of assets to manage and, and understand. Um, and so, you know, we, we can detect um, 10 different types of failures um, on motors just by observing uh, vibration. And we're starting to look at other forms of measurement as well, like um, power signatures um, in order to augment that capability. And that's, that's really exciting. Um, you know, we, we can actually, within a relatively short space of time, monitoring an asset, say that this, this motor has a problem that needs to be remedied. The, the next level um, involves, and each of these levels involves more data. Um, and this is why this is the natural order of things. That the next level involves looking back over time and saying in previous is a current previous occurrences of this kind of failure um, here are what the time scales look like between the first early warning sign of that failure and the actual um, critical failure and so that's what we we term prognostics which is the ability to take those early warning signs and to predict a future pattern in other words we see an early warning sign here that could result in a failure within two weeks time and um, suddenly that sets a, an ability to frame your whole schedule around what we think is going to happen um, and but that involves huge amounts of historical data in order to understand those patterns and so that's you know one of the things we're working on is acquiring that data <clears throat> and um, you know customers are sharing data with us in order to help us build those algorithms and make them more accurate and then the, the last piece is prescriptive where we can extend this to say here's the early warning sign we're seeing here's what we think is going to happen next and in this time frame and here's what you should do about it um, at which point you know we we can um, <clears throat> be fairly specific about what those remedies are and that, that could be a further inspection by the way so you know it might not be uh, a replacement part or something it could just be we need to get more information and here's what you need to go measure um, but I think that uh, it, it's helping that organization <clears throat> and predictability around what work you'll be doing, which changes the manner in which a maintenance operation is run to a much more uh, planned 
rather than unplanned responsive mode. So this is very encouraging. I mean, if I look at the data pieces on the right, um, that's a lot of data, historical data, as well as asset performance data. I mean, very different types of data, as you say, put into context. And the mm -hmm. way you're talking about it makes it feel like we're quite close. Like you really do feel like this is coming potentially in 2020 for plants. Yeah, I think we want to be slightly careful about overpromising. So this is coming certainly in 2020 for some types of equipment. Uh, All right. We focused on motors, and rotating equipment. I mean, and largely because they're the biggest pain point. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I don't want to say that we're going to achieve all of this in the next couple of years for everything, um, but it's a theme, right? And once we've, once we've proven it that works for a specific subset of assets, then obviously we will start to work on others. Um, Over on the left, you have a couple of big words there, analytics and machine learning. So I'm going to go mm -hmm. ahead and move here because we hear these words almost ad nauseum, right? Machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yeah. And there's there's too much science fiction, you know, too much of this this you know robotic mind in it and not enough practical reality. So back on that data set that you've just talked to, um, are we at the point where we have the means and the the technology to to really apply machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, so as a as a technologist, I, I do get upset by the the idea that, you know, we're going to have robots walking around doing all this stuff. You know, that's not the that's not reality at all. Um, but but these technologies do represent a paradigm shift in that it allows machines to detect patterns um, that, um, you know, even humans find very difficult to do. Um, you know, and, and ultimately it plays to the computer strength, which is data crunching. But what we're doing is, is crunching huge amounts of data and saying we've looked at a thousand uh, patterns and we've identified these similarities and we're allowing the computer to recognize those similarities again. And ultimately all the prediction pieces, there's no magic to it. It's saying in 400 occurrences that we've looked before, this is what happened. And therefore we think this is likely to happen again by matching patterns and data. So I think, yeah, I think I personally think it's quite important to try and um, take some of the magic out because we need to be able to trust this stuff. And um, the more magic it is, the less easy it is to trust. It's very true. So, you know, it's really crucial to understand what we're doing is we're feeding historical events. And when the computer sees something that looks like one of those historical events is using it to say, this is what we think will happen this time. And that's that's called a prediction. So it's not magic, it's pattern matching essentially, um, but it is extremely useful. Uh, and we really didn't have a way of doing this before. I mean, we, we certainly use good old fashioned rules in our algorithms. Yeah. What we do today is based on a, an understanding of the physics. So a lot of mm -hmm. vibration, for example, you know, we can build those rules because we understand what equipment is doing and the physics of that. And, um, you know, that's clever. But, where we miss out is where things look a bit the same and don't behave identically. And the, what the machine learning does is allow us to say, well, this looks a bit like this. So we can give you a 74% chance that this is what's going to happen. So it's that kind of fuzzy matching that machine learning enables us to do and, and very, very complex scenarios that are very difficult to come up with rules where we don't can't write the, the, the five rules or the 500 rules that make up a scenario. Machine learning is allowing us to do that. Yeah, just the pattern identification alone is absolutely fascinating. Enough data, crafting those patterns, then being able to look for the patterns. It's just insane. It's it's really it's really cool. Right. So what about this other big buzzword, 5G? Is that going to be a big thing in 2020? Um, I think it'll be a thing. Um, and I, I think it's a little bit of a placeholder in some senses. So what we believe that 5G will do for us is it will make it easier for us to connect sensors and, and equipment to mm -hmm. the internet. And um, specifically with much lower latency than we've seen before and at lower cost. And cost has been a big barrier to cell cellular enablement of sensors up until this point, particularly for large data sets like vibration and thermal imaging and so on. So I think 5G is extremely promising. Uh, there are other protocols that we're looking at. Um, so really what we're trying to do with sensors, we want it to be super easy to deploy. 
if it doesn't have to connect to your corporate network that would be great um, because that's a, that's a pain point um, so if there's an alternative to that and we can achieve long range because the, in industrial environments achieving range is hard um, with technologies like Wi-Fi and Blue, Bluetooth um, you know we've we've had issues there and there are better technologies coming and the last thing we'd like to achieve is longer battery life um, so currently we're in the three to five year range for sensors um, but ideally we'd like that to be 20 years so there are interesting technologies coming you which enable uh, energy harvesting meaning we're pulling energy essentially from the environment using things like vibration airborne vibration and structure-borne vibration to uh, generate power in the device itself, meaning these things can last, you know, theoretically indefinitely, but certainly for 20 years. Um, and that depends on lower power communications technologies. Things like Wi-Fi use a lot of power, typically need to be plugged in, whereas, whereas some of these newer technologies can run on a very, very low uh, power battery. So I think that, that would change the user experience, you know, really as a plug and forget type scenario where you can take a sensor, stick it on an asset, and you don't have to think about it ever again, uh, you know, within a, a generation at least, um, will we'll change the way people think about these investments. It's it's all, I mean, again, it's, it's all terrifically cool to think that we have the means coming up very shortly to process the data, as you say, at low latency, very quickly, at much lower costs, and at distances and then the part about the environmental uh, energy harvesting is is just cool i mean that's that's the part of change that for me is more massive versus incremental because that's that's really cool and so useful so incredibly useful again taking some of the pain out of batteries for example right yeah i mean the last thing we want to do is to introduce another maintenance burden right if, if you have to change the battery every year then you know that that's um creating work and we're trying not to do that or you're introducing conflicts or security risks or the rest of it so right. it's and is this very much a parallel do you say to the regular network or um, is that still the best way to go yeah i mean it, it, it's a bit many organizations separate their production networks from yeah. their enterprise networks already and it's a bit like that but using technologies that are much easier to deploy on a wide scale so, you know, deploying a Wi-Fi network across a large facility is expensive, whereas right. some of these newer technologies have ranges of, um, you know, five, six, seven miles so that you can have a very small number of gateways um, with a lot of devices attached and um, no wires in sight, which is uh, very cool. Powerful, yeah. Very cool. Also, that that's obviously exciting. Um, but I think that there's a little bit of, of fear out there as well. I think we, you've already dispelled some of it. Um, we're going to try this poll thing again, and I'm going to try not to double click. Um, uh, there. All right. So, um, are any of these fears um, on the mind? Uh, are people concerned that plants will close if they don't modernize, they can't compete? Um, are people concerned about robots taking their jobs, making a job obsolete? Um, and feel free to replace the word robots with technology if you want. And uh, there's always economic anxiety in manufacturing, right? And we've done a good job with modernization, being able to address it to an extent, but are we still concerned about that? So I'm gonna give it a moment. And obviously there's more more concerns out there than just these. And if you have other things you want us to discuss, feel free to put that into the questions tool. Um, I can see some questions in there already. And uh, we're about wrapped up. Oliver's got a few, few more things and then uh, we'll get some questions answered. All right, get your responses in. I'm about to close the poll. Okay, closing and sharing with you all. So no one's worried really about their job being taken by a robot, that's good, but they are concerned about the pressure of modernization and the pressure of economics. It's very real, it's very real. So we've taken some of the stressors out, but some of those other stressors, stressors are still there. So with that, Oliver, 
Um, let's go right on to this thinking of yours that in the fact of the future that the the key elements are still there just what we're doing looks a little bit different yeah so i, I think you know there there's this sort of as you put it a science fiction myth that our job's going to be taken over by robots and i i don't certainly don't see that happening in my lifetime um yeah but i think that the roles that we're performing will change um for sure and, but there is this very symbiotic relationship between the systems and the data and the people, and ultimately the people are the people, are the other things that are, are actually getting the work done. And all we're doing is is making them a little bit um, better informed and, and able to do that work. So I, I don't think there's a risk um, in the medium term of, of people going away at all. I think that we we're going to focus our, more of our time doing the things that require expertise less of the time doing things that are uh, data gathering and data um, mining exercises. All right. Um, and then you have this schematic of the plan to the future. I don't think we'll go into very much detail now so we can get some questions answered. But essentially, you've built out you know, the teams and the data and the systems with knowledge in the center, right? And, and there's lots of people involved here. Yeah, um, I mean, knowledge knowledge comes from lots of places, right? And one of the primary sources is people. So one of the other things that we haven't really talked about is how do we um, enable it easier to capture knowledge from people? And and the <clears throat> the importance there is that the technology will get better the more we put human expertise into it. Um, so we, we need to capture that knowledge, particularly when it comes to prescriptive. You know, I, I think the machines aren't going to come up with recipes for fixing things. People are. But we need ways of capturing that so that that, that can be um, shared and, and, and replicated. I mean, I, I wonder if it's worth just sort of coming to the what turned out to be the major concern, which is that modernization is key to um, to going through any kind of slump. And, right. uh, and, and also the concern that that isn't going to be enough. I mean, obviously, right. there's no again, there's no magic. We can't. Um, if, if demand slows, then um, there's only so much we can do. But we we can focus on what we're good at, which is keeping things running and being as efficient as possible. And I think you know that goes to cost, and cost is always critical. And so you know, typically when we go through downturns, what we see is huge drives for efficiency, and we see innovation. Um, so actually, you know, people come up with creative solutions to things that we didn't need to come out when when everything was going great. Right. Um, it, it's not always a reason to be um, <clears throat> to be negative. I, th I think it is important to keep an eye on new technologies uh, for all of us uh, that can help us be more efficient and continue to do what we do better. So I'm, you know, I'm very positive about the impact that the technologies working on now can have on manufacturing in particular, uh, where I think there's a lot of potential for optimization. I think the, the real question is the speed at which we can do that. Right. Well, there's actually a really good question on the line, uh, in line with that, where someone asked how publicly held companies justify IT infrastructure projects, right, which are necessary to move in in this direction, um, but uh, they're expensive. So, so how do you get that rolling? What's the justification? Well, there's there. It's just like any other business case. At the end of the day, there's got to be a return on investment. Um, mm -hmm. I think there are some, you know, it's, there's very, very good, strong arguments to to say that maintaining equipment better by avoiding failure is going to be cheaper in the long run than uh, waiting till it breaks. And I don't think there's anything too surprising about that. I think justifying it with data can be difficult. Um, and that's why, you know, a lot of the customers that we're working closely with are using their early implementations of these technologies to understand the financial implications um, and so that they can justify bigger rollouts but it is strategic you do need top-down support no question and i'm very familiar with the challenges in getting funds in a public company right right one myself <laughs> i'm going to bounce back and forth between some of the question themes here um so uh, we had a question 
come in about data sets. If a machine learning system requires large data sets to train a system, how long does it take to get enough data um, from a sensor that might just be getting a few readings a day? That's a great question, and I'll be totally transparent. I don't know the answer. Um, you know, we we have a, a Fortive, our parent company, has a head of analytics who likes to say that you can build a model with two data patterns. Uh, it just won't be very good. And so the answer is it depends how similar patterns are. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to things like vibration, which is very complex, uh, we're looking at thousands and thousands of patterns across uh, tens of or hundreds of thousands of assets. Um, and going back 15 years worth of historical data that we have been analyzing and uh, tagging those patterns using human experts. And we have some very, very expert vibration specialists helping us do that. So it, it's a lot, um, but I don't, I can't really quantify exactly how many you need. I think for simple patterns, you know, if you, if you in some cases you can build a rule because it's obvious in which case you could do it with a very small number of patterns. But in, in the cases we're interested in, it's precisely the complex stuff that requires a lot of data in order to be able to do that. And the, and the, the way we can do it is by aggregating data across all of our customers, not just taking simple reasoning, readings from you know, a small number of sensors. That would take a very long time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. well, I think you've just answered a couple of the questions that came in where people were curious about, you know, are we really going to get algorithms that can interpret infrared thermography images, you know, and all of the, the different types of data um, that are that are involved in that? Yeah, I mean, actually, that imaging is a really fascinating area. And, yeah. um, and we've got some interesting technologies. So we have a business called RSS that uses images to do people counting, for example, and we're, we're deploying some of the, that expertise into other areas like thermal. And um, and actually, I've spent quite a lot of yesterday um, with, with a team who are looking at applications for a, a new product that Fluke launched earlier in this year, which is an acoustic imager. Um, the, mm -hmm. the, the product was launched specifically to spot air leaks, which is it's a great application, but we're looking at all sorts of other applications that involve using machine learning to interpret sound data uh, very, you know, from from low frequency all the way up to ultrasonic uh, sound. So the answer is yes, um, we can we can do amazing things with images. And I think if you think about the potential of combining acoustic and thermal imaging as well, so we can detect heat and sound in the same image, I think there's some very, very fascinating potential. So one, awesome. example, one example of that, I know we're, we're out of time, but um, is using acoustic technology to monitor bearings on, on conveyors um, with, mm -hmm. with many, many rollers and motors where, you know, it may not be practical today to put individual vibration sensing on, um, but you can use acoustic technology today uh, to actually monitor those bearings and, and look at hundreds of different assets at once using a single image. Very powerful stuff. We, we do have more questions, uh, but we'll, we'll not be able to get to all of them. Here's a, here's a good baseline questions. Um, sometimes we use the words IoT and sensors interchangeably. Obviously, they're different things, right? But um, they are very much related, as in the biggest um, visible implementation of the IoT is the sensor. But how would you differentiate the two? Um, yeah, and the IoT is a somewhat vague term, and, and that means everything from, you know, our Alexas at home to vibration sensors. And, um, you know, I think many people in this industry say, well, what's the difference between IoT and my my existing control systems? I think the, the impact of the IoT is on cost um, and the fact that – can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yeah, sorry, I could have something else. Um, the the we it's much much simpler now to connect things to the internet than it used to be. And I, when I say internet, I mean a network um, because yes. we can still do this within a customer facility without yes. the internet. So the the term Internet of Things is distracting there. But um, I mean the the sensor is is the is the source. And what we're really interested in from the Internet of Things is when we get into you know we. we we've got a lot of buzz phrases here, but the big data aspect is when we get data from thousands or, or hundreds of thousands of sensors, it starts to get interesting. So sensors are essential. 
Um, but what happens on the other end is really the interesting aspect of the IoT. And that, that has really happened because A, of the co low cost of getting things connected and B, the massive amount of processing power that we have available that wasn't available in the past yes. to process and turn that data into meaningful uh, information. Yes, it's a combination of all those things. All right. Well, we have more questions, but we will write answers back to folks. And when I close the presentation here in just a moment, all of you will receive a survey. If you will click through the survey, it's very quick. Answering the survey will then get you a copy of all of our slides. And you can always go to excelx.com to watch the replay of this uh, if there were more things that we talked about that you want uh, more time on. So with that, you are welcome to talk to Oliver. Um, if uh, if you like on his email there um, and please stay tuned for our ongoing webinar series we generally do two of these a month a mixture as i say of different experts from the industry and we value your feedback very much so thank you very much for joining us today um, it was a pleasure thank you for all of your answers in the polls and we'll be talking to you soon so take care everyone thank you oliver so much yep thank you leah all right bye everyone